or you may be seated. We are going to jump from chapter 13 to chapter 17 in Matthew's Gospel as uh, we're getting down towards the, the end of our time, not only in our Bible classes, but also in our, our worship time studying this great, great Gospel. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles up to the passage that Gabriel just read, chapter 17 of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses and, uh, and making some, uh, some application to our own life and, and unpacking this, this great passage. And uh, before we do that, though, we want to make sure that we ask God to bless us during this, this, this holy time of study. And so let's bow our heads and join our hearts in prayer. Father, great are you to us in every, in, in every degree, in every area of life. At every level, Father, we find you touching us in, in ways that, that transform us and revolutionize our lives so that we become more like your son Jesus and our faith deepened to trust and, and to obey and, and to be faithful, to have a faith that works in every circumstance and in every moment, to have that faith, Father, that, 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 that sees your presence at all times and finds that confidence and assurance and hope. Father, we, uh, we have read this passage so many times and the task this morning is for it to speak to us uh, not just powerfully but but afresh and so we pray for eyes that see and ears that hear we we pray father that that these words will become the contemplation of our heart and the meditation of our mind this day and that it, it changes profoundly bless us in this way father as we study and we seek knowledge and we pray this in jesus name amen great uh, Danish existentialist from, uh, and Christian from the 19th century in, in Denmark, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, used to tell a lot of parables to try to help his, uh, his fellow countrymen understand the gospel. And there's one that, that's near to my heart. It's a parable about a prince that falls in love with a peasant maid. And this prince, he, he desires to, to, to spend the rest of his life with this peasant maiden but he also at the same time wanted her to respond to him in joyful love and, and, and not just to be coerced. And although this prince knew that he could overwhelm this maiden with his power and his glory, thereby terrifying her into submission, you know, the result was not going to be what he wanted. It would not result in, in true love. And so he decided on one last option, one last course of action, and it was that he too must become a peasant. But this transformation had to be more than just an act or, or a mere disguise. And so foregoing all of his kingly pomp and all of his power, this prince became a peasant in every respect. He was wearing peasant clothing. He ate peasant food. He did peasant labor. He, he, eat, he, he, uh, he, he led a peasant life. And he, and he experienced all of the peasant joys and all of the peasant sorrows. And in this way, he began to woo and to win the heart of this, of this maiden that he loved with genuine love. And Kierkegaard ends this parable with these words. They're up here on the screen. He writes, And this is the unfathomable nature of love, that it desires equality with the beloved. That it desires equality with the beloved. Not in, in jest merely, but in earnest truth. 
This is one of the reasons why the Gospel of Matthew opens up at the Incarnation, that, that the King of the universe has become human. The King of the universe has become a peasant. God has become a human, and He wears human clothing, and He eats human food, and He does human work. He was the son of what? A carpenter, right? And Jesus experiences in the 33 years that He lives on the planet all of the human joys and all of the human sorrows. But there comes this point, and we looked at it last week in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist, the great John the Baptist, the herald of the Messiah, who's off in prison on the east side of the Dead Sea now, in the prison of Machaerus, and he's beginning to have some doubts about the identity of the Messiah. Is Jesus really the one? And so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus says, Matthew chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, you go tell John what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those that have leprosy are what, church? They're cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now this, uh, this apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the first disciples called, he is going to fall away a little bit down the road, but just for a moment. But before that happens, he, he is with Jesus and the rest of his colleagues, the, the disciples, the apostles, up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus is asking him this question, a very important question. It's one that John had been struggling with, John the Baptist had been struggling with. And the question is, who do men say that I am? And they come up with all of the, the things that they had been hearing, the rumors, all of the things that, that people were saying in terms of trying to make sense of who Jesus is. And that's really the key. Do you really understand who the Messiah is? When Jesus says, I am He, do you understand profoundly what it means? And so Jesus listens to him for a little bit and then He turns to them and He says, but, but who do you think that I am? Who do you say? What say you? What say you about me? And Peter is probably as beautiful here as he will ever be in his entire life. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And that's how this first section of Matthew's Gospel sort of ends. We know who Jesus is. And the rest of this Gospel, beginning with what Matthew records Jesus as saying, from this transfiguration, or, or from this question in chapter 16, through the transfiguration, to the crucifixion. From that point on, it's explaining what Jesus came to do. And on the heels of Peter's confession that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, Matthew records Jesus as teaching what is going to happen to Him. What happens to the Messiah with all of their ideas of what the Messiah would be? What is going to happen to Him in reality? What is the truly significant, real thing that's going to happen to Him when He gets there? And in verse 21, Jesus begins to explain to His disciples that they are on their way to Jerusalem. He must go. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer. And suffer. Many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that He must be what? Killed. Massacred. Crushed, in Isaiah's words and on the third day be raised to life. Now beginning here and, and throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, there is this dark tone. 
because Jesus talks a lot about his death and what that death means. But in the meantime, there is this little incident that is unlike anything that you will read anywhere else in the ancient world. We call it the transfiguration, and it's here for a reason at this point in the story. Because it tells us who Jesus is again, what he came to do, and how we should respond to what it is that he does on our behalf. It's the gospel. The transfiguration is really the gospel in a nutshell. And what we're going to do for the rest of the time that we have left this morning is unpack this. First thing we want to say is this. The transfiguration is a reminder to us of who Jesus is exactly. Precisely who he is. Now as we read the details of the transfiguration, details like going up after six days, a mountain, a cloud, the voice of God that in, in the, 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 among the Hebrew and the, among the Jews was, was the, the, the bat kol, the, the echo, the, the, the sister voice, the glory of God, the tabernacles. All of this reminds us of what story from the Old Testament? It's Mount Sinai all over again with Israel meeting God for the first time after leaving Egypt in the Exodus. They're fresh out of Egypt. They're beginning to form a new nation. They come to Sinai, and the glory of God comes down on top of the mountain in the form of a cloud. And God is, is hidden in that cloud, and He speaks to Moses. And He speaks to Moses about various things, about laws, about the way the people are to conduct themselves, how they're to have faith in Him. The covenant is beginning to be uh, unpacked for them. And during that time, Moses wants to see God. And what does God say? Can't happen. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and what, church? And live. And Moses was not able to see the glory of God directly, but he got a, a sort of a, the, the backside dose of it. And, and, and it was getting near enough to that Shekinah, the, the glory of God, to cause Moses' own face to be transformed a little bit, to reflect God's glory to the extent that it scared the Jewish nation as he came down off of that mountain. And now many centuries later, we're back up on a mountain. And in verse 5, we have the voice of God. In verse 3, we have Moses again. We also have Elijah who, to, who also encountered the glory of God in 1 Kings while on a mountain. And there is also the glory cloud, the Shekinah, the bright cloud that envelops them. But there is one thing that is incredibly, tremendously, significantly different about this particular story in Matthew 17. The glory of God, it's this, the glory of God is not reflected in a, a person's face like Moses. This time it's emanating from a person, Jesus. And in verse 2, there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as the light. Mark's Gospel will say whiter than anybody in the world could ever bleach them. It's an astounding thing. It's, it's the glory of God. It's the Shekinah and it's coming from Jesus. Now this is one of the things that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across both indirectly and directly throughout the entire letter that he writes known as Hebrews but it's what we see specifically in that first chapter where this writer says, you know, the Son, Jesus, it's the radiance, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Do you know what Jesus is? Sure, He's the Messiah. Sure, He's the Son of God. Sure, He's all of these, these titles. But Jesus is the unsurpassable expression 
of the majestic, overwhelming, infinite, shattering beauty of God. Jesus is the radiance of God in human form. And when we see Jesus, what we see is the exact representation of God. And Paul, who was struck down and even made blind by that light in Acts chapter 9, what is it that he says to the church in Colossae? When you look at Jesus, what do you have? You have the image of the invisible God. Now the Bible in Matthew chapter 17 cannot be any more clear that Jesus is, is different. He is not one more prophet that's pointing to God. He is not one more person that is, that is writing down some ideas about God. He is God. And Peter and James and John get that more so than at, at any other time up to this point in Matthew's Gospel. And quite frankly, when you read you know, the synoptics about this, you know, I think this is the point of the request to build the tabernacles. Now, I, I've heard sermons all my life that, that you know, what, what Peter is doing here is he's so enthralled and excited about being up there that he doesn't want the moment to end. And so that's, that's built some tabernacles so that this moment never goes away. We're also told that Peter was out of his mind and didn't know what he was saying. Peter has a mind that is saturated with Jewish Scriptures. And he knows that to see God is to what? To die. He's read Exodus. He's read Exodus all of his life, and he also knows that the only way that God could dwell with his people without killing them, without destroying them, because of the presence of sin that was in the camp within that nation was for the glory of God, that Shekinah, to be shielded inside of the tabernacle. This is why they're terrified, I think, in verse 6. A simple question. Why do you die when an elephant steps on you? It's because you cannot support the weight of the being of the elephant with the weight of your own being. Same is true here. This is why they are terrified, and, and I don't think that they are necessarily inspired in any kind of a special way. I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, just the, how humbling it must have been. I mean, dazzling, yes. Overwhelming and powerful, absolutely. But humbling beyond probably their, their experience of humility up to that point. You, you, you guys know that I like to play the drums a little bit. When I was learning to play the drums, I took lessons from an incredible instructor. The guy was the, the, the Navy jazz band drummer out of the Naval Academy. And, and I took lessons from him for uh, several years, learned how to read the music, learned the rudiments of drumming. And I listened to a bunch of other guys play the drums and imitated the rhythms. And, you know, I thought I was pretty hot stuff for this ninth grader. And then I saw Buddy Rich. I saw Buddy Rich one night, uh, the, 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 the greatest modern drummer, on the Johnny Carson show, and I knew that I would never be that good. One of the hardest things to do when you're drumming is to play, you know, lots of people can, can do rolls, but one of the hardest things to do is a perfect roll where it just, it's just perfect. Very difficult to do with two hands. Buddy could do it better than anybody with two hands with just one hand. Just play one hand drum rolls all day long. And so I, I was kind of inspired. And so the next morning after everybody left to go to work, I went into the, the room where the, the drum kit was set up 
and I spent a couple of hours trying to do a row with one hand. Never even came close. And I was no longer inspired. You know what? I was humbled. I was, I was completely humbled. I knew that I never was going to be that good. And the same thing happens a couple of times in the Bible when people come into, you know, face to face with the greatness of God. Job is the most righteous man in the East. That's what the Bible says. That's not what Mark says about him or Ben. The Bible says Job really was the most righteous guy in the East. But when he gets close to God in the whirlwind, what is it that he says at the end of, of Job? Chapter 42, he says, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I what? He says what, church? I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Over in Isaiah chapter 6, you've got the great prophet Isaiah. Hey, Isaiah is, is, is not, not just in terms of literature, the, the, the genre of, of, of prophecy that you, know, you find in, in the Bible. Is it fantastic, especially in the King James? But Isaiah is given the vision of things to say that bless us to this day, you know, nearly 3,000 years later. He is a prophet. He is the one who speaks the word that God instructs him to speak. And then King Isaiah dies. And Isaiah is, 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 is sort of perplexed about what is, what is Israel going to look like? What is Israel going to be like when this, this new king rises up? Are we going to be faithful to God? Are we going to be holy? As a nation, in the eyes of all of the, the other nations, will we be that kind of light? And right there in the middle of that perplexity and the ambiguity of thought in terms of what Israel's going to look like, he has this picture of the glory of God in the temple. And what is the first thing that the spokesman for God says? My mouth, my lips are what? Unclean. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. You know, church, when, when sinful human beings get near to the presence of God, they feel their identity begin to disintegrate because our being cannot support the weight of His being. And yet, that's not the way that we were built originally. We were built to be in His presence. But our sin has ruined all of that. And that is why that tabernacle had to be built. The tabernacle was a shield against the holiness of God that had not just become something that pleasant that we saw on a regular basis in the garden, but it had become destructive to humans. Destructive to you and to me because of sin. Which brings us to the second point. The next two points will be shorter, but the second point is this. The transfiguration points to this new exodus. Up to this point, to be in God's presence in this way that's being described was to die. And they know it and they're petrified that this is what's going to happen to them. And so in verse 6, they fall down terrified. In verse 7, Jesus tells them to get up. In verse 8, what do they do? They, they look up. Their eyes are probably closed. And all of a sudden they look up and they are in the cloud, surrounded by the cloud that, that, that it was, uh, had encapsulated the Shekinah in the Old Testament. And they don't die. Let me repeat that. They don't die. Why? How can that be? It's when they look up. 
All they see is Jesus. And this is Matthew's way and Mark's way and Luke's way of saying Moses is gone and Elijah is gone and Jesus is the bridge over the gap between God and humanity. And when Jesus gets to Jerusalem and He suffers at the hands of all of His enemies and He dies on the cross in chapter 27 and verse 51, don't want to speed too far ahead, but what happens? The curtain of the temple that separated man from God at Jesus' death is torn in two. And decades later, in looking back on that death and the tearing of that veil, the tearing of that great curtain, the Hebrew writer says, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What this writer is saying is that Jesus gave up the immensity and the infinite magnitude of His being in order for us to be able to come back into the presence of God without being crushed, without being terrified, and without the guilt, but with confidence and steady hands. And, and one day, God, because of, of Jesus, is going to make us beautiful again. And Jesus is going to end our enslavement to sin and bring us back to the Maker, which leads us to this last thought, and that is, you know, the transfiguration also tells us how to respond to Him. You know, if you haven't gotten it all the way up to Matthew chapter 17, by the time you read the first 13 verses of, of Matthew chapter 17, you realize that Jesus is not just a regular guy. He's not like you. He's not like me. This glory tells us that He is supreme. And then there is this voice of God that comes out and says to them, This is my Son. And not just my Son, but the Son whom I, what? And with Him I am well pleased. And then the voice, I think, turns to everybody else standing there and watching it and says what? Listen to Him. Let's say that together. Listen to Him. Let's say that one more time. Listen to Him. Listening to Him, that's what we're called to do. If Jesus is who He says He is, then you can't have Him on the periphery of your life. He has to be the reason that you get up in the morning. He has to be the center of your life that everything else revolves around. Jesus becomes this axis on which everything else turns. You just can't say, you know, I like Him. You can't just say, you know, He's special. You have to listen and you have to obey. You have to listen. Because anything less than that is just a sham. You know, one of the, the, the things that, that I've been thinking about over the last week and, and meditating on, on Matthew 17 is that, you know, up on that mountain, Christ is, is, is dazzlingly beautiful. He is, he is beautiful beyond description. And it's just a few chapters later that 
All of that beauty, who He really is, the glory of God, the Shekinah, the beauty of Him, the, the majesty, the infiniteness that is, that is, that is expressed in, in the transfiguration, all of that is completely changed. You remember a couple of weeks ago that we talked about how the end of Isaiah chapter 52, it talks about how Jesus suffered and was so tortured, so crushed all the way into chapter 53, that at the end of chapter 52, he says, to look at him was to be appalled. He was appallingly massacred in such a way that to, to see him was to be shattered. To see him was to want to throw up. It was so grotesque. He goes from that beauty on the mountain. He goes from that glory and, 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 and reunited with His Father just for an instant. And to hear the Father say, My Son whom I love, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased to go from that to being so beat up and suffering to the extent that he can't even carry his own cross and to be lifted up on that cross with nails in the wrists and the feet that people looked at him and felt nausea. That's what Isaiah says. Why? It's because that's really what we look like because of our sin. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? It's not a very pretty picture. But the reason that He comes off of that mountain and into Jerusalem and is, and is crucified on a hill, beauty to ugliness is ordered to take our ugliness and to make us beautiful. One of the things the Bible says over and over and over again throughout the New Testament is that when we become Christians, what we're doing is really it's, it's sort of like putting on Jesus. The Son that He loves, the Son in whom He is well pleased. We become beautiful again. We become beautiful in such a way that, that we were able to come into the Father's presence again, the way it used to be. And up there on that transfiguration, what He's reminding us is that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the only singular individual way to find your way back to God. First Exodus was an ending to pure, literal enslavement to another person. The second Exodus that Jesus brings out with his, his life and with his, his, his death is an eternal one that ends that enslavement to the very sin that drives us out of the presence of God. And... and we have an opportunity this morning, we, we all have an opportunity this morning, to, as Brad was talking about this morning, to really meditate on the fact of what it is, what it took, what price had to be paid for us to be able to come together and actually feel pretty good about ourselves because of the grace of God. And for others of us, it's an opportunity for us to realize, you know, that was a great price. There was suffering that was involved and there was a transformation of that beauty into something really ugly so that I could find myself coming back into the, in, into, the, into the presence of God and to be a part of a community of faith. I need to get my act together. I need to get my act together spiritually. I've been, I've been pretty lackadaisical. I've been pretty flippant with God's Word and pretty flippant with, with that sacrifice. 
And it's time for me to get serious because I don't want my faith to be a sham. Jesus has to be the reason we get up in the morning. He has to be the axis on which everything in our world revolves. That's what it means to be a disciple, to pick up that cross and to follow Him. Or it might be this morning that, you know, you've been trying for, for so long to try to make that connection to God and you just keep coming up against the wall. You get so close, you sort of get a taste of it, only to fall back, fall back, fall back, fall back. Well, the opportunity is here right now during the singing of this next song. If there's a way that we can, we can sit down with you and talk with you about how you make that connection to God and it become permanent and eternal of, 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 of confessing Jesus to be your Lord and, and repenting of, of that past life in order to be able to live a new kind of life where Jesus is at the very center, to be that Lord you confess Him to be, to have your sins washed away, that Holy Spirit put inside of you so that you're transformed. That God puts that Spirit inside of you to help you to become that beautiful person you were always meant to be then during the singing of the song we want you to come down and talk to our shepherds you can do that now as we stand together